Amen. Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Jude uh, in the New Testament, uh, right there towards the end, uh, just before Revelation. And so, uh, and it's Revelation, not Revelations. Just throwing that out there for anybody that was thinking, what does he say? It's right before the book of Revelations. No, it's one Revelation. Just think of it that way. Um, And so we are so excited this morning. Uh, What an amazing time of worship and song to lift up the name of Christ, to know that he is literally our everything. And uh, he is not a part of our life, right? He is our life. Um, Christ is not one part in a, a way to live a happy and successful life. Christ is our life, regardless of whatever our circumstances may or may not be like. And so we are so excited to praise him this morning. And we are continuing in a series uh, we started a few weeks ago called Conversations with God. And what we said was, um, if we could have a conversation with God, if we could sit and talk to him, uh, what would we want to ask him questions about? What would we want to get his opinion on? And we've covered everything from what would God say about politics to what would God say about the church. And that ended up being like a two-week message um, because your pastor's long-winded. Um, no, uh, well, he is, but also I just had a lot of content. But, um, and this morning, uh, we're going to be talking about another topic that I pray will uh, encourage you um, and, and give you wisdom to guard against some things that I think are uh, coming into the church, not our church specifically. I mean church, the body of Christ in our nation and in our world. Um, these are not new things by any stretch, although the title will give you the impression that it is. Uh, it's not new by any stretch of the imagination. It's been since the beginning. Uh, we've seen uh, individuals, groups, movements that have tried to pervert and twist and change the Word of God to meet their own understanding or their own views. And so we're going to look at Uh, what would God say about the New Age movement, the New Thought movement? Um, What what we mean by New Age is, again, you think, oh, well, this is new. This is not new. Uh, This is basically uh, mysticism, any kind of, and uh, phrases like, usually related to this would be things like energy, auras, chakras. Um, Some of the New Age movement things would be relating things to Buddhism, Hinduism, and incorporating those things together. Um, One of the weird things about New Age, New Thought movement is that it really is kind of a melting pot of a lot of things. That's kind of what I'm getting at. There's even a very popular, and I'll give you more about him in just a minute here. Um, There's a very popular speaker, author. um, His name's Richard Rohr. um, And he talks about um, kind of this New Age mysticism, okay? What's interesting is for like 50 years, he was a Catholic priest, And uh, he has no problem taking Christian Bible views, Christian views, what he called Christian views, and kind of merging those with some of these mystic New Age, New Thought movement teachings. And so that's kind of the weird thing about this area is that that you can very easily take a Bible verse and kind of as your foundation say, the Bible says this, and quote the verse, and then build on that foundation some very different views, some very non-biblical views, and then you go, but it's okay because we have a Christian foundation. So I know I'm not really going to try to confuse anybody today, but we're going to walk through this this morning, okay? Um, And because again, I think on the surface you might think, well, what's the big deal? If somebody thinks like this or says this or says the Bible says that, uh, in my opinion, the false teaching that I'm hearing and seeing going through our church and our nation today um, is the most damaging thing to the church. Um, greater than any secular danger we may be facing. Any other, and I'm all for speaking out against political things that we feel are injustices and defending those rights and freedoms and all that. And we, we kind of talked about that a little bit in that first week. So if you missed that, go back and listen to that. But in my opinion, as a follower of Christ and as a pastor, 
the greatest concern I have for the church in America today is not politically based. It's, it's the teaching we're hearing from the Word of God from pulpits across this country. It's the teaching of things that are just completely not in Scripture, but yet sound like they should be in Scripture. And they, what does the Bible say as the time grows dim, right? As they, as they get towards the end, what are people going to do? They're going to gather to themselves. What? Teachers having itching ears. They're going to refuse sound doctrine. That's what we're seeing in our day and age today, guys. That's, that's what's happening in our day and age today. And so let me just say this. As we go unpack all of this, I want to remind you again, and, and hopefully you know this is true of my heart, and hopefully you know me well enough to know this is true. Um, this is not an attack against any one teacher. Okay, hear me now. What I hope to do this morning is unpack the teaching that we're hearing. I don't know the hearts of some of the people I'm even going to reference as examples of teaching these things. I, now, they profess to be Christian. They profess to know Christ. I can look at their teaching and go, I don't necessarily believe they are true followers of Christ based on the Word of God, but I don't know their hearts, okay? So I can make it a, a discernment that I'm not going to follow their influence because at the least, if they are a Christian, they're not true followers of Christ by following God's Word. But maybe they're not saved at all. I don't know. That's not the point of this talk. The point of the talk is not to attack a person. It's to criticize and discern a teaching, and as, as students of God's word, we have to be okay with that, right? Amen? I mean, God's word says you have to discern the spirits. Is it of Jesus Christ or is it not? By the way, all things Christian are not Christian. Just because it's a Christian author, supposedly, in a Christian bookstore with a Christian title doesn't necessarily mean it's biblically sound. And I encourage you guys... Um, and I don't know the exact title. I can't remember now what, it, what it's called. But uh, we've been doing this study on Wednesday night. It's called Epic by Tim Challies. And I, I've referenced Tim Challies before. But Tim Challies, and I, maybe I've said this before too. I don't know if it was on a Sunday night or a Sunday morning. Uh, Tim Challies is a pastor in Toronto, I believe. And he's also a book reviewer. I'm going to reference a review that he gives of a book in a little bit. Um, but he did a video. And it was basically like the top five worst bestsellers of Christian books. Something like that. And he talks about the five five of the top bestsellers in Christian genre, and he kind of talks about biblically, theologically, why they're not very sound biblically and why they're actually very dangerous. And so just some food for thought. If you have some time and you're on YouTube later today, maybe look him up. Uh, very sound guy. I like a lot of what he has to say. I don't agree with everything he says, but he's very, very sound in most things that I've heard. So that being said, I want to look at Jude 4. I want to talk about how we can unpack this because I think we have to be so discerning in our day and age today. Um, we have, we have instant access to media, right? I don't have my phone on me, but if I did, I could pull up YouTube. And I, I've been listening to, at times, Billy Graham sermons from like the 50s and 60s. You know what's amazing? I'm listening to these sermons. One was like from 58 or 59, 60, somewhere in there. And I was listening to this going, man, the church needs to hear this today. Like, by the way, sin, right? Perversion. These are not new things that just crept into the church. So I was listening to the sermon and I was like, man. There's a video going around right now of him talking about not putting his trust in Washington, right? Not putting his trust in his finances, not putting his trust in a person, but putting his trust in Jesus Christ above all things. And we need to be reminded of that today, every day, right? But because instant media exists, we have to be so discerning the voices and the influences we're allowing into our lives as followers of Christ. I'm not saying you can't listen to somebody that you disagree with biblically. You can. 
but know where they stand on those issues so you're aware of where you need to be concerned. I read books and listen to speakers that I vehemently disagree with on biblical issues, but I listen to them and I hear them because I kind of want to know, well, what, what led them to that? Why do they believe that? What, what scripture are they looking at? How are they understanding that? So you can listen to these differing voices, have conversations with people, but if you know where you stand on these things, you're not going to be harmed by that author or that speaker if you know where they stand on those things as well. All right? So let's do this. Jude chapter, or Jude 1 verse 4. I always say that. Jude always gets me, okay? Uh, you're going to notice there's no chapter number because there's only one, okay? So biblical scholars decided in their wisdom we don't need to put a one there because it's only one, okay? So Jude chapter 4. Now Jude is a little book, only about 25 verses. It's written to the early church, so early believers, okay? But I want you to listen to what he says here. Let's look at verse 3, actually, to give a little context. Jude uh, 3, beloved, and I love that phrase in Scripture. Who are the beloved? The believers, Christians, right? Us, in the body of Christ. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation... It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints. Verse 4, for there are certain men crept in unawares, not in their underwear, okay, in unawares, okay, because that would be awkward, um, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, which basically just means a license to sin, if you think of it that way, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we ask that you would be just over this time this morning, this talk, that you would help us to understand the truth of your word, but also, Lord, help us to be discerning of the things that are going around in the church today. Lord, help us to do this with a heart of grace. Lord, I pray that we would understand that this is in no way an attack against an individual or a person. Lord, this is a discerning of the teaching that we're hearing from pulpits, from churches, from believers, even those that really, Lord, we would say they, they really do know you as Savior, but maybe they've just been confused. Maybe they've been, they've been taught something false. And now they're just kind of passing that along. And so, Father, I pray that we would know that as your word says, that we do not war against flesh and blood, that, that even the person that's the false teacher is not our enemy. Lord, they are somebody that you died for, somebody that needs to know Christ if they don't. And so I pray that we would be discerning and wise with the teaching we allow into our lives. I pray that we'd be uh, honest about our endeavor to know you more. Lord, it's not about us being right and them being wrong. It's about what do we see your word laying forth in a clear teaching, a clear understanding? What are the, the orthodox views that, that Christians from the very beginning have held according to your word? And how can we stand on those things today? And so, Father, I pray that as we walk through this this morning, I, I really do ask, Lord, that we would have the right heart, the right mind, that we would be open. Our hearts and our minds would be willing to hear what you have for us, Lord. And, and Father, let me just say this. If there's anyone here that is listening to or adhering to teaching that would be contrary to your word, I pray that you would give them wisdom, that you, Holy Spirit, would open their minds to understanding and truth. 
And Lord, I pray that we would just desire to follow you above all things and your word being the foundation. Uh, Lord, this, this book is unlike any other. It is not like any other human book. It is, it is the revelation that you have given to us to know you more and make you known. And I pray that's what we would do. We love you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Jude 4, interesting little verse there. Uh, when you think about this, though, uh, it's kind of interesting what he says in verse 3. And we went and packed this on a Wednesday night a while ago. And the idea here is that Jude says in his opening of verse 3, what does he want to write about? He says, I want to write to you about our common salvation. Isn't that what he says? And what does that mean? He wants to rejoice with them in the common salvation they have in Christ. The point is, this is supposed to be an encouragement. He's like, I want to share this great joy that we have in the Lord. I want, to, I want to write to you about our common salvation and make Christ central. But then he kind of says, and I believe it's under, obviously, the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit. He says, but there's something, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, there's something more important. There's something more vital that I have to write to you about. And here's what it is. I want to exhort you to be aware that in the body of Christ, there are men that have come into the body of Christ that you didn't notice them, Maybe they're even, and apparently they're in areas of influence and leadership, and they're teaching things contrary to the Word of God. Now, we're going to take the principle of this verse and apply it to false teaching in the churches today. But the specific false teaching, there's two that are talked about here. Two specific false teachings, I believe, that Jude points out. One is using the grace of God for a license unto lasciviousness. That basically means that instead of saying, we're saved by grace. Are we saved by grace, by the way? Are you thankful you're saved by grace? Amen. You know why we should be very thankful we're saved by grace? Because you could not be saved otherwise. Right? Can I do any work to earn or merit salvation, forgiveness of sins, heaven? No. That's the whole beauty of the cross. Jesus died for our sins, was buried for our sins, rose again to show victory over hell and death and the grave. And now in Christ, we are seated in the heavenlies. Not by what I do, but what Christ did for me. And so we are saved by grace. But as a follower of Christ, the Bible seems to suggest in a lot of places, or directly states it in other cases, where we are to live in a way that would honor Christ. This means we desire to abstain from sinful things. Saying right after that, can and do Christians, fully saved Christians, sin in this life? Yes or no? We're fully tempted. And we can choose to sin. The Bible would tell us that if we are a Christian and we give in to sin for a period of time, there will be conviction of that sin. We will know we are sinning. If someone can sin for a long period of time with no conviction, you could make the biblical argument they may not actually know Christ. Okay? But if somebody is in Christ and they're sinning, they're being convicted of that. The Spirit of God is convicting them and, and drawing them unto repentance. So the truth is, we're saved by grace, apart from works. It's, it's not by works that we've done. But we also need to live in a way that honors Christ. Paul says it this way, live in a way that is honorable, like your vocation. Like live in a way that represents the holiness of Christ in this life. Desire to please him. First John says, sin not. That's the goal. Sin not. In Jude's day, in the early church, what was happening is they were saying, you're saved by grace so you can sin as much as you want. It doesn't matter. Just go sin. Who cares? Grace. Grace card. Grace card. Grace card. Man, this should really sound familiar if you've been paying attention to some of the teachings in the church. There's a movement today called hyper-grace. What hyper-grace means is not only are you saved by grace, kept by grace, you don't actually sin because of grace. 
even if you sin. That you actually can't sin because you're in grace. That's a dangerous, destructive teaching. Because what it does is it leads Christians who are fully saved to ignore the leading and conviction of the Holy Spirit and to sin in ways that would cause harm to themselves, their testimony, their families, and their church. It's just not according to the Word of God. And so Jude says, hey, you better be aware these people are in your church. They're, they're actually teaching this stuff in your church. And then what's the second false teaching? To deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Any teacher that does not affirm that Jesus Christ is both God and man, that he was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the sinner's cross, was buried and rose again, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, God himself from the beginning, right? Genesis, let us make man in our image. Elohim, God, plural, Trinity. If anyone denies the biblical truth of who Jesus Christ is, they are not teaching the word of God. You cannot say Jesus was a good prophet and say you're a Christian teaching the word of God. You can't. You might be saved and confused, but I don't know in that regard how you can even receive Christ without believing he is Savior. And I'm telling you, there are people today, I mentioned the man just a little bit ago named Richard Rohr, fully believes he's a Christian, but says Jesus and the Christ are two separate individuals. That they overlap, but Jesus was not really the Christ. The Christ is, well, we'll get to that in a minute, and it'll be interesting to see how you respond. Jude, again, points these things out here. In the church today, there are things being taught that have been twisted and distracted from the true purpose of the church and our lives in this world. Not just biblical truth, the purpose of your life as a Christian. You're hearing things now being taught that's distracting you so that you'll think your life is about you, not about Jesus. That your life is about your checkbook or your health or your wealth or your possessions and not about Jesus. You're being taught things from churches. I'm talking churches that have thousands and thousands and thousands of people in attendance. It's all about you. How can God make your life the most comfortable life or maybe the best life now? But again, is this a new issue the church is facing? Is this new teaching? No. It's been since the beginning. And what do we do? How do we combat this kind of teaching now, we can rant and rave and freak out and become social justice people and get online and just go crazy. We could do that. And there's no, I'm not saying you can't voice your opinion. I'm saying it's fine. But I'm thinking the foundation for how we combat this teaching is we need to get into God's word and know it. And as we know God's word and we hear these teachings, we can reject those teachings as false because we know God's word. Have conversations, share things online, research articles. It's all good, all good. But the foundation better be in the word of God or else we're going to be driven. What does James say? Like a wave of the sea, right? Push to and fro with this wind of doctrine. That's really what we're talking about today. I want to be clear again. I'm going to give you a couple examples. I'm going to actually show you a video in a minute. And I know some of you may misunderstand why I'm doing that. I'm just guessing. I'm just assuming that, I guess. Maybe I'm wrong. But I want to be clear. I'm not criticizing the person because I don't know the person's heart. I have a personal opinion of their fruit, but I'm not judging the person. I want you to look past the person and see the teaching. Because I think as biblical scholars, as students of God's word, as followers of Christ, we have to discern the teaching beyond the person. And we don't do that very well. We see somebody that says they're a Christian and a pastor, and we take their teaching as true because they're a Christian and a pastor, not because their teaching is biblically true. And we have to go deeper than that. This means, by the way, you might be sitting there thinking, well, wait a minute. 
Pastor Christian John? What about your teaching? I hope and I pray that you're evaluating my teaching according to the word of God. And if I ever teach anything contrary to the word of God, you better be the first one at my door to say, time out, what's this and this? And by the way, people in our church have come to me in the past, not for false teaching, but (laughs) at least not that I know of, but for clarity. Do you know how many times people have come to me after a Sunday and gone, you know, you said this, I just, what about this and this and this? And we have, you know what's amazing when that happens? (gasps) A conversation takes place. You know what happens in that conversation? (gasps) Fruit. Something productive comes out of that. There's been times in minor doctrines where I've looked at somebody and said, this is what I believe the Bible teaches. And they'll go, well, I think it's more like this. And it's a minor, what we'd call a fringe doctrine, not crucial to the Christian faith. And they go, man, I just disagree with that. I'm like, that's okay. We can agree to disagree on that. As long as we believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, grace through faith alone. If we're on these things essential, we can have some liberty over here is what we're getting at. So again, I, I hope and I pray that whatever teacher you're listening to You're doing that. So here's what I want to do real quick. I said real quick. That was a lie. I want to take some time. I'm going to kind of look at, and now I'm not saying these are the only five, but in preparing for this message, I came across five New Age teachings that are paramount in New Age thought teaching that are in the church today, that I've I've heard or I've seen or examples of are in the church. Not necessarily our church again, but the church So I'm going to kind of just unpack each one of these a little bit. I'm going to tell you kind of what the New Age teaching is, what they view that to mean, what that looks like. In some cases, how they even use Scripture to try to back that up. And then what I believe the answer really is according to God's Word. Okay? But again, because of our time, we're not going to go super exhaustive into all of this. I'm going to kind of hit a point, talk a little bit. I'll spend a little bit more time on a couple of these because I think they're more prevalent. But we'll kind of see where we go this morning, okay? And if we just run out of time, we'll just pick it up next week, all right? So if you're taking notes, the first example of New Age teaching in the church in our nation today would be the law of attraction. The law of attraction. Just curious, has anyone heard of the law of attraction before? This is popular, okay? This is popular not just in New Age thought. This is also sometimes in leadership books you'll hear this, personality books you'll hear this, different things in our culture we'll talk about this. Uh, The law of attraction is basically this. This is where we manifest our reality by the words we speak. This is where you never say anything negative about ourselves and only speak good things. So hear that definition now. We manifest our reality by the words we speak. So again, if I want positive things in my life, what should I be doing? I'm speaking positive things over my life. If I say things like, I'm never going to get the job, I'm never going to get the promotion, I'm never going to get the girl, I'm never going to get the guy, I'm just so dumb. As you're saying that, well, those things will, quote, find you. And you'll be without the promotion, without the job, without the girl, without the guy, because you spoke those things into existence. However, if you speak things like, I am wealthy, I am healthy, this reminds me of an SNL skit from years ago. Small, small, what was the guy's name? Stuart? Stuart Smalley. Stuart Smalley, right? Wasn't that him? Yes, and he'd sit in front of the mirror, right? Isn't that the, get, the, the bit? And he would say, I am beautiful. I am attractive. Like, that's kind of things, right? This is the law of attraction. If you say anything negative, negative will find you. If you say only positive, positive will find you. This also obviously carries a karma-type teaching. Basically, the core of this is you become God. 
You become God. You manifest your reality into existence. You become God. Uh, In New Age teaching, one of the ways they communicate this is through things called a vision board. A vision board. A vision board in New Age teaching basically means you put something that you desire up on this board and you keep speaking it into existence. So for some people, it might be like a Ferrari, okay? I want a Ferrari, so I'm going to put a little picture of a Ferrari up on my vision board and every day I'm going to speak, I will own a Ferrari. I, no, I'm sorry. I own a Ferrari because you speak in the present tense. I own a Ferrari. I own a Ferrari. And over time, when the Ferrari shows up in your driveway, poof, look what you made. And guys, this is not... I, I, when I first heard this, I was like, come on! Come, no, come on! Man, guys, people eat it up, man. You know why? Because what's the, what, are, what is the teaching of that really kind of calling to in us? What is there in us in our sin that it's calling to? The word selfishness, right? You deserve that Ferrari. You deserve that million dollars. So you speak it into existence. And man, we like that. We love that teaching because I'm going to speak this into, I'm going to, I'm going to, going to be a millionaire. Problem. What does James say about praying for things just to consume them on your lusts? Not hearing that. Man, speak a Ferrari to existence sounds a lot better than what Jesus said in Luke when he says, pick up your cross and follow me. Uh, Deny yourself and follow me. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, they wandered about in goatskins and and naked and afflicted and in caves and were persecuted and killed for their faith. Man, that Ferrari and that money and that health wealth stuff, that sounds way better than this Bible stuff that says I may actually suffer for Jesus Christ. Now, will God bless us with health and wealth at times in our lives? Praise God that he does. But he is the sovereign one who dictates those things in our life. We don't manifest reality. So I want to give you an example of this. It's the best one I could give. It's the most consistent one I can give. And I pray you understand why I'm giving it again. Um, And if this bothers you in any way, uh, just let me know. But TJ, go ahead and show that little clip for you of this pastor and teacher Hi, I'm Joel Osteen. I'm excited about my new book, The Power of I Am, two words that can change your life today. When you say, I am strong, strength comes looking for you. I am blessed, blessings start tracking you down. Or I am unlucky, bad breaks start heading your way. I'll help you choose the right I am's so you can live a happy, healthy, successful life. I hope you'll pick up a copy for you and a friend. Key words there. You know what's amazing to me about that book? I've not read it. Read some reviews about it. Read some excerpts from it. Who is the I am? Jesus says, I am. Do you know in that book he doesn't talk about the gospel once? Do you know in that book he talks about, what did he say? What's the key? What is our life goal? To be happy, right? Healthy, successful, Was Christ-like mentioned anywhere in there? Biblical mentioned anywhere? Guys, and this, you might think, oh, you're picking on the most popular example of, you know, this. He's actually more specifically called a prosperity preacher. Guys, I challenge you, and if you you have the stomach for it, I don't usually, but if you have the stomach for it. And again, nothing against the man. I don't know the man. This isn't about the man. This is about the teaching. And if I get aggravated, it's not about the man. It's about the teaching. Every time I turn on a sermon of his, it's the exact same content. 
I am blessed, then blessings will come looking for you. It's the law of attraction put into practice week after week after week and thousands, if not millions. That book has millions of cells. Every one of his books sells in the millions. Guys, by the way, if your best life now is this side of heaven, that means your destiny is hell. I, I'm praying this is not my best life now. If this is my best life now, man, I'm not looking forward to eternity. But I know this isn't my best life now. By the way, the Bible never suggests this is our best life now. The Bible says we endure this season of temptation and trial and struggle and suffering with some blessings for a hope that is beyond comprehension. Because one day through Christ we'll be with him forever. And so, by the way, guys, this is, again, he is the most consistent public example of this teaching I can find in the Christian church. Thousands of people watch it week in and week out. It's constant. And we have to be guarded against these things and go, man, God, I want your glory and blessing over my life, not my own selfish desires. Now, what's the counter to this as far as the Bible's concerned? In the Bible, we understand that our words do have power in relation to how we speak about ourselves and others. But we must realize that there is only one God, and we do not change our reality based on our words. How I speak to another person will edify them, build them up, lift them up. That's true. How I think of myself in relation to the biblical view of who I am will change my perspective on my life, will change my view of my life, but it won't necessarily change my life as far as circumstances and those kind of things. And so understand, yes, our words have power according to God's word, but we better make sure we're putting it through the lens of Scripture and the one and only true God, that my words need to be seen through the power of Christ, and everything I say should glorify him above all things. And so are our words powerful? Yes. It makes a difference how we speak about other people, how we think about other people is reflective in our words to them. So we need to understand there is a connection there. But again, do you see how they take a biblical idea and then build this whole elaborate foundation or whole elaborate teaching on it? They build all this other stuff off of a basic idea that Scripture never really addresses. So the first New Age teaching we see in the church today is the law of attraction. The law of attraction. The second one, quickly, is known as oneness teaching. Oneness teaching. This, in this teaching, everything is one. Everything is one. The sun, the moon, the birds, the rocks, the grass, the you, the me, the everything is one. We're all one. Live in the moment. Right? We live in today, only in today. There's also, in this understanding, no judgment, no, no condemnation, no anger, um, no criticism, no poverty. Here's the idea. If we come together, in quotations, if we come together, we can overcome all obstacles because we're one. I mean, that sounds an awful lot like if you go back and you read Genesis chapter 11. It talks about this thing called the Tower of Babel. And the people were of one language and they came together as one and they decided we're going to build a tower unto heaven. Not to get to heaven, but to show that they're more powerful than God. Look at how powerful we are. God said, disperse in all the earth. They stayed together. And they built a city and, a, and a, basically a pillar. A, a, the creation museum and stuff goes into much more detail about this. A pyramid. Uh, what's that called? Uh, an edifice. Um, different things. A ziggurat. Yep. And so you see those all over the world. Isn't it amazing that people groups all over the world build these things, and yet we know Genesis 11 says they had one common ancestry and they know how to build it. That's interesting to me that all over the world we see these examples of the same thing being built by people groups that speak different languages, have different cultures. There's no explanation for it unless 
we believe the Bible is true, and they all learned this in Genesis 11, and it was passed down through generations and generations and generations. But this oneness teaching is the power of us, the power that we can come together as one, and we can overcome any obstacle that faces us. We never call anyone out on their false views or beliefs in relation to God or Christ because we have unity in all things. Unity in all things. This is where, you know what? You think something different than me, that's fine. I'm not going to judge you or condemn you. You say Jesus wasn't really God, that's okay. I believe he was, but we're fine. We're united in all things. I'm not going to judge you because this is our world today. And what's crazy is the only ones that are being pushed out of this are the Christians. The group that preaches the biggest amount of tolerance are very intolerant towards Christians. It's kind of ironic to me that that's what's happening. So when you see this, this oneness teaching, it's you remove anything that would divide. You don't teach anything that would divide. You don't say anyone's right or wrong. We're all just one. We're all just united. In fact, many would actually use John 17 as an example of that. Jesus prayed for this very thing. They would say, well, Jesus prayed just as the Father is one with me and me with the Father, so they should be one with me and with us. And they go, see, Jesus prayed for oneness. The problem is Jesus, what was he saying when he was praying that prayer? Who is one with Christ? Is the whole world one with Christ? No, the believers are one with Christ because of Christ. And so there is a unity in in the word of God, and it is among the believers. But hear me now, we are called biblically to discern right and wrong, truth and error, right? What did Jesus say in Matthew? Jesus said in Matthew, don't think I've come to bring peace. I've come to bring a, what's the word? Sword. I've come to bring division. Division between who? Mother and father, son and mother, brother and sister. What is that division? What causes division in a family like that related to Christ? I come to Christ, but my parents are not Christians. There's division there. Now, we are still family. I still love them. They still love me. We're still family, but we're not united fully in all things. Why? Because I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and they don't. That's caused the division. Jesus Christ causes division when it comes to what we view about Jesus Christ. What does Paul say in the book of Romans? Jesus is a stumbling block to those that would reject him. What does that mean? You have to acknowledge him. You're going to stumble over him. You may reject him, you may reject his son of God, but you will have to one day admit, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? By the way, read Revelation. What does God do before the throne? He divides those in Christ, those not in Christ. So again, this kind of a teaching, this oneness teaching, sounds really good. Well, we should all be united in one. But really, when you start breaking it down, you realize, oh, wait, but you're actually removing anything that would divide, which would mean, as a Christian, I can't tell you you need to be saved, or the Bible says you're going to go to hell for your sins. I can't teach that in oneness teaching because your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, and we're all truthful. Every holy book carries the same weight of truth. Who are you to tell them that they're right or wrong? This is postmodern thinking coming full circle. So we have to understand this oneness teaching is in the church. Christians will teach this. Pastors will teach this. Well, let's all just come together and be one. Nothing, nothing that causes division is good, they would say. Now, let's be honest. There is bad division, right? There is sinful disunity in the church. 
This is when we take an area of Christian liberty and we use it to divide one another and say that they're not even a Christian because they disagree with me about, I don't know, going to the movies. Let's just pick something silly. Of course, those kind of issues of disunity in the body of Christ are wrong and sinful, and we are one in Christ. We need to strive to be one in Christ. But, but that one in Christ does not convey to the entire world. And so understand in this oneness teaching, the problem is that they're removing the area where you divide over anything. But we see this in the church today. So law of attraction is one of the things that we see. Number two, oneness teaching is in the church today. Uh, a third one we see is kind of related religious pluralism. Uh, this is a new age idea, new thought idea. Um, and again, we've kind of talked about this a little bit already. All beliefs have their own truth. Many ways to salvation and all paths lead to God. This is when we link up teaching with cultural teachings. We link up biblical teaching with cultural teachings. Um, our culture is all about inclusivism and not excluding anyone. What's the problem with that? Is not truth, by its very definition, exclusive? Is 2 plus 2 4? In what way can 2 plus 2 not be 4? What if you believe it's 5? I can't deny truth to accept your feelings on this. And so to me, I want us to understand this. This is what we're saying here. Religious pluralism is this idea that all various kinds of truth contains truth. Therefore, we can't criticize one another about which tribe is best. That's a term they'll use, tribes. What that means is this group thinks they're the tribe that is Christian and the tribe that is Buddha and the tribe that is Hindu and the tribe that is Muslim. Well, we're all really on the same path. We're just fighting amongst each other of tribes, trying to control and dominate who's right and wrong. But really, we're all going towards the same pinnacle, the same heaven, the same nirvana, the same whatever destination they, they call it. But the problem is the Bible, again, and the Bible teaches there is only one way. There's only one way to heaven. And what way is that? That is through the personal work of Jesus Christ. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. He, not many ways, one way. Let me ask you a question again. Is that what Jesus taught, that there are many ways to salvation? No. Is that what Paul taught? Did the Apostle Paul spend his entire ministry teaching, we're all going the same place, it doesn't really matter what you believe? No, of course not. He spent his entire life as a follower of Christ, hungry for people to come to know Christ. When you read Acts chapter 17, he specifically says to the religious people of Athens, all of this stuff you're doing, God has winked at your ignorance. But now is the time he's calling all men to repent and trust in Christ. God has given grace for repentance, and we need to not take that as a, an allowance for religious pluralism to say it's all okay. No, there's one way to salvation. It's through Christ and Christ alone. Next one I want to look at. I'm just kind of going through this quickly. So we've got law of attraction, oneness teaching, religious pluralism, some examples of some things we see in the church today. Uh, number four, we would see universalism. Again, playing off the same idea, but I'm going to give you some more examples of how this is kind of playing out. Universalism. This basically means that all are saved in the end. Even if you have nothing to do with Christ, the Bible, Jesus, salvation, nothing. All are saved in the end, no matter what. And if you do have to go through something bad after death, it is temporary. So even if you have to go through something bad after death, it's only a temporary thing, and then you have heaven as your home. Even God is defined differently depending on the person that is speaking about God. This is the idea that, again, everyone goes to heaven. Everyone is saved. 
There is no hell. There is no damnation. There is no condemnation for our sin because we haven't really sinned. The, the whole book of Genesis is just figurative. There was no original sin with Adam. We're all going to heaven because we're intrinsically good. We're really, at our inner core, we're good. We're not sinners. And the sinful things we do out here, that's just because we haven't been taught to understand that we're really good. And so we're reacting with sin because that's all we think we can do. But we'll all go to heaven when we die. We'll all go to heaven one day. Again, this teaching is very popular. Uh, One of the best examples of this would be a book by Rob Bell called Love Wins. Um, In this book, Rob Bell basically suggests that for us to project wrath on God is wrong. That the reason we want sinners to be uh, condemned to hell is because we think they should be sin or they should be punished. So like Hitler, you hear the name Hitler and you automatically think evil, sinful, man, that guy should be punished for eternity. Well, that mindset is what we project on God, according to Rob Bell. And then that's why now God doesn't really actually do that. He merely lets them go because love wins. But what's amazing is in his teaching of this, he never specifically says verbatim, all people go to heaven. He just asks a lot of questions and then leaves it up to the audience to figure out what he means. That's another thing in some of these teachings. It's very fluid. It's very individualized. It's very how you take it and what you think it means. Which again, to some degree, God's word is individual to us. God applies it to our lives individually. But in a lot of ways, God's word is not individual. It is clear revelation that we are to live under. Another author uh, that has suggested this idea Um, as well as many other attacks against Orthodox Christianity, is an author by the name of William P. Young. William P. Young. Does anyone know what book he wrote uh, about 10, 12 years ago? Maybe a little more than that. That was super popular. The Shack. Okay, there you go. Uh, William P. Young wrote a fictional book. Hear me now. It's fictional. The Shack is not nonfiction. It's fiction. um, Called uh, and it sold multiple millions of copies even had a movie made after it. Um, and again, it's a fictional writing that caused a stir. Right? When this book came out, evangelicals were losing their mind. And I would argue rightfully so. And I'm going to get to why in a minute. Because evangelicals now were going, well, it's just a fictional book. It's just entertainment. I think it's creative the way he you know, presents God in a different light and all this. Other evangelicals were going, but man, there's, there's no scripture here. There's no gospel here. There's, it's just complete rejection of Orthodox Christianity. And then the response was, but it's fiction, so it doesn't really matter. It's just, it's just imaginary. It doesn't, it's not real. So the evangelicals that were conscientious of it or, or concerned about it said, okay, that's, it's fictional. We'll let it go. Fast forward a few years. William P. Young wrote another book. This new book in 2017 a non-fiction book entitled Lies We Believe About God. He presents, I think it's 28 Lies We Believe About God. So a man that wrote a fictional book that sold multiple millions of copies about eight years before, seven years before he wrote his second, or well, he wrote other books too, but another non-fiction book called Lies We Believe About God where he addresses theological issues. Let me just throw it out there. Why do you think an author would do that? a real whimsical kind of fun nonfiction book. I get an audience. Now I have millions of people that have read my book. I present another book. Guess what those millions of people are going to do? I really like The Shack. I'm going to go buy that book. Because that's, that's what's happening here. And in this book, 28 Lies We Believe About God, he actually questions things like sinful uh, de- 
um, being totally depraved in our sin, that I'm, at my core I'm really good, that all are saved. He suggests these things, not even hints at them. He says these things. The idea that anyone would go to hell for their sin is ridiculous. There is no hell. All are saved. The Bible is meant to be taken figuratively, not literally. Christ didn't die for our sins in our place. That he took the cross as the worst humanity can do and showed he loved us still. Now, again, I want to read something from Tim Challies, who's a pastor and book reviewer, and he said this when comparing the two writings. He says, Years ago, when I reviewed The Shack, I said, Despite the amount of poor theology, my greatest concern is probably this one. The book has a quietly subversive quality to it. Young seems to seem set on undermining Orthodox Christianity. Seems set, he puts again in quotations. Now we know because of this new book, he is set. He is set on revoking and replacing the very pillars of the Christian faith. This is the stuff that's being just permeated in Christian culture. A Christian author writes a Christian book that quotes one or two verses out of context or without any understanding of the rest of the story of Scripture, and now we are just lapping it up because it feeds our inner pride, selfishness, or what we want in this world. Last one, real quick. So we've covered four. The fifth one that I, again, this isn't exhaustive. This is just some things that I've kind of come across. Mysticism. Mysticism. Mysticism is kind of a, a weird thing to define because it's, again, very fluid. Um, someone said it's kind of like nailing jello to the wall. You just can't really seem to do it. He said, it says this so as, a, as a form of a definition. Mysticism is seeking a divine or spiritual knowledge of God that comes primarily from some experience to connection with God. So again, seeking a divine or spiritual knowledge of God that comes primarily from some experience to connection with God. Uh, we see this in the hypercharismatic movement, experience over scripture, which leads to, quote, secret knowledge. And if you study your scripture, there's a heresy in the early church known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the idea of secret knowledge. Secret knowledge means only the prophet has this knowledge, only apostle. The apostle in this hypercharismatic church, this teacher, this person on the internet, they have the word from God. They received a word from God, an experience. Doesn't really matter what this book says. I had an experience. So you take my experience equal to scripture and I can tell you whatever I want. Again, Gnosticism was a heresy during the early church that the Bible condemns. The idea of special knowledge that you gain without the need to be taught that knowledge. Some teach this is what Jesus really taught. However, the New Testament speaks against this idea. This idea of secret knowledge that, that I wasn't taught this knowledge. I just have this from my experience with God. And now I'm going to give it to you. And now you take it as equal with God. Now here's the danger of this. There are some Christian so-called prophets, teachers, whatever that they will say something that's awfully close to Scripture or is Scripture, okay? And then we go, oh, he's, it's Scripture. I see it in Scripture. So we think they're good. But the problem is that usually there'll be something scriptural, something scriptural, something a little off, something scriptural, something a little farther off. And it's those little variances that start to lead us to kind of start going, wait a minute. Now I'm deciding between Scripture and your experience, well, who is truth or what is truth? And again, 
some of these prophets even have made, quote, prophecies that have, quote, come true. But because they just looked at the scriptures and looked at what the Bible was saying and said some things, and it seemed to come kind of true. But then some of these prophets make prophecies that never come true for decades, and nobody questions it and continues to send them tons of money. A man by the name of Richard Rohr openly teaches mysticism and New Age, and yet refers to himself as a Christian. Now again, you might think, what's the big deal about that? I don't know who Richard Rohr is. I've never heard that name before. Um, no big deal. I've never heard of him. How, how big can he really be if I haven't heard of him is what we tend to think. How influential can he really be? However, just recently, and again, not an attack against the person, there's just a quote. And I'm not saying you can't quote people you don't agree with. But I'm just saying when we quote people, we give them influence. Just recently, Stephen Furtick of the Elevation Church quoted Richard Rohr in a positive light. Here's the quote. Stephen quotes Richard Rohr who said this, Most of us were taught that God would love us if and when we change. In fact, God loves you so that you can change. What empowers change? What makes you desirous of change is the experience of love. It is the inherent experience of love that becomes the engine of change. Now, that's a quote by Richard Rohr, quoted by Stephen Furtick. Now, let me ask you, when I read that, most of us would hear that and go, I'm, I'm kind of good with that. I agree with the opening statement. Is it true that God only loves us because we do things to make ourselves lovable before God? No. In this, right, when we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the opening line is, I'm good with. God loves us through the personal work of Christ. We receive Christ as our Savior. Now we're able to make changes in our lives that would honor him. We're good with that, right? Everyone good with that? That's what the Bible suggests and teaches. Then he carries on and says, what empowers change? What makes you desirous of change is the experience of love. This is where you can start to hear, if you know the background of the author, you can start to hear where he's shifting away from. He doesn't say the experience of salvation through Jesus Christ. He says the experience of love. We as Christians, we go, well, yeah, but that love is in Christ. We contextualize that statement into our understanding, which is fine. Because again, it's not necessarily intrinsically untrue. But then he says, it is the inherent experience of love that becomes the engine of change. The inherent experience of love. While we think that quote, ah, come on, Pastor John, you're just splitting hairs. It's pretty close. He's just, maybe he omitted it, but he really meant it. Richard Rohr also wrote in a book called The Naked Now. That title should get your attention. The Naked Now, not meaning literally, but just exposing truth. You ready for this? The former Franciscan Catholic priest, Christian. The subtitle is, Learning to See as the Mystics See. Here's the quote. The most amazing fact about Jesus, unlike almost any other religious founder, did you hear the, the phrasing here? Is that he found God in disorder and imperfection and told us that we must do the same or we would never be content on this earth. I have a problem when someone says that Jesus found God. No, no. Jesus didn't find God. Jesus is God. It's not figuring out how to find God in disorder that we are content on this earth. No, it's finding my purpose through the worship and connection to Jesus Christ that gives me contentment on this earth until I go to heaven one day and be with him. And obviously, again, I'm not suggesting that we can't quote someone we disagree with in one area or whatever, but just be aware of who we're referencing and what we're talking about. 
I do believe that there should be more in common than not when referencing someone in relation to the truth of who Christ is and was. Again, notice that he suggests Jesus had to, quote, find God. To roar, Jesus is not God, because Jesus and Christ are not the same thing. I referenced this a little while ago. Rohr's book, quote, The Universal Christ, a book that suggests that Christ is not a person, but an energy in all things. Another phrasing from that New Age thinking. An energy in all things. This is how he refers to the second part of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, Christ the Son of God. This is the concerning part. This book is Amazon's number one book in both Christology, which is the study of Christ from a theological point of view, and Christian ethics. And it was blurbed by U2 singer Bono. Oprah Winfrey interviewed Rohr in 2015 and 19. The ex-pastor Rob Bell has been influenced by Rohr and did a 90-minute interview with him from an article from September of 2019 by the Gospel Coalition. So Rob Bell, influenced by Richard Rohr, Rob Bell, pastor, former pastor, left his church, wrote a book called Love Wins, Teaching Universalism, which he got from Richard Rohr, who is a self-professed Christian mystic, who actually says that Paul was a mystic. Paul is in the Bible. And in Acts 17, this is, what, this is what people who have this teaching will do. Acts 17, Paul says that God is your life and your breath and all things. Richard Rohr says, see, he's a mystic. He believes God is in everything. And we're all united as one. He said, if you put a camera outside the tomb, when Jesus rose again, you would not see a solitary man walking out of the grave. You would see beams of energous light shooting in all directions, spreading the Christ to all people in the world. Is that in this book? I'm pretty sure it says that Jesus rose literally from the grave, that he walked in a form of a body. We know it's a glorified body because in one minute he's here, one minute he's in the other room that's locked. The Christ is not an energy beam. The Christ is the person of God, the anointed one, the Messiah, come to save us from our sins, ascended to the Most High, that we would worship him, honor him, and follow him. Regardless of what teaching, teachers like Rohr say, Jesus Christ was clear. No man comes unto the Father but through me. Jesus is the Lord. He is the Christ. He is the only way. Matthew 16, 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus agrees and says that God revealed it to him. Jude says, Anyone who rejects that Jesus is Lord is not true. They're a false teacher. And again, I know what we do. We read articles, we hear things. And I know, again, there are hints of truth in these teachings. There are hints of things that reflect to Scripture. There are things we read in Scripture and go, that sounds like what this is saying. But remember what I said in the very beginning. Often, these teachers will take a hint of truth in the Word of God and then build on that a premise or a belief system that begins to waver quite quickly away from the truth of what Scripture was saying in that point. And that's why we have to be discerning. That's why we have to be understanding and saying, God, what does your word actually say? I want to know your word. And I'll give you one little more insight into this. If a teacher spends more time talking about how you benefit from his teaching or the word that he's giving you in this life, in your finances, or in your success, I'm not so sure that person is 
really following this book. Because a teacher of God's word has to admit and acknowledge that there's both blessings and trials in this life. There are great blessings. Man, God is so good to us. And when we work hard and we do what he's called us to do and we're good stewards with our money and we follow biblical principles, he can bless us financially because we're putting biblical practices into place. But there's also times in this world that you will do everything, quote, right. You're the good steward. You're doing all the right things according to what you see God's word saying. And yet a trial comes. Cancer comes. You lose your job. A loved one dies. And these teachers, their teaching would deny those things and say, no, 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 it's only good all the time. Only speak good all the time and good will find you. And we have to be so careful that we don't omit things from the word of God because here's the point in closing. When you share Christ with someone, we need to make sure we're sharing the true gospel. And the gospel has become just get saved and have a better life. That's not the gospel. The gospel never says get saved, have a better life. The gospel says you are in your sin. There's a punishment for that sin called hell. But Jesus Christ, because he loves us so much, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross and rose again. And if you would place your faith and trust in Christ alone, by grace, receive the salvation he's offering. You will be saved from your sins, redeemed, and find heaven as your home for eternity. And in this life, you will experience great peace and great joy. But in this life, you will also suffer and you will see great persecution. Because this isn't heaven. This isn't it. We're just passing through. We're just temporary, temporary residents, but our citizenship is in his heaven. And we need to present the full gospel, not a watered-down, more appealing human gospel. We need to present the true gospel. And I think if we're not careful, these teachings will misconstrue that in our minds. I really do hope this has honestly been a blessing to you. Uh, this has been something on my heart for a long time. And as I read God's word and I hear these teachings, it just drives me crazy. And again, a conversation's open. I would love to hear from you and how you see these things or how you feel about these things or think about these things. I'd love to talk to you more about that. But I want to let you know, man, my prayer for us as a church beyond any disagreement we may have is that we would be focused and founded on the word of God, that that's our foundation and we're preaching Christ every day. Let's pray. Father, we love you, Lord. And we thank you so much for today. We thank you so much for this morning. Lord, I know that today was a little different as far as our normal service. But I pray, Lord, that we would be discerning of the things that we're hearing in the church today. Lord, I pray that we would be discerning of your word. And there are some, Lord, that will take your word and We'll pull verses out of context or we'll even use the verses in context, but try to build some kind of an elaborate teaching. Lord, I pray that any teaching that we listen to would not put us at the center, would not make it about us, but would make it about you. When we read the letters that your apostles wrote to the church, that, that you, your Holy Spirit gave them the revelation to write to the churches, so often, the emphasis that you're trying to make clear is that the church, that the body of Christ is for Christ. It's about elevating him above all things. And so, Lord, I pray that we would understand that, yes, our words have power. 
that yes, we must speak life and not death. I, I, I understand what Proverbs is saying there, that it's wise to speak things that are edifying and encouraging and lift up the other person, not to tear them down, to build them up with our words. But I pray that we would understand that in Scripture, there is a limit to the power of our words. That by my words, I don't manifest reality. I am not God. And so I use my words to glorify you, to speak edifying things to other people, Lord. But sometimes you call us to use our words to speak things that would actually divide. When we make claims that Jesus Christ is the only way, our words are dividing. And someone may hear that and not like that, may think that's too harsh or not very loving. I pray that we would know that when we speak those words, it must be with a heart of love. And so, Father, I pray in all of this that you give us wisdom and guidance and help us to be followers of Christ, not followers of self. We're not here to build our kingdom. We're here to focus on your kingdom. Lord, bless now this time of response as we cry out to you and ask for wisdom and application in these things. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd stand to your feet for just a few moments, we're going to have time of invitation. This is a time for you to come and maybe just pray and ask God to give you wisdom in these things. But let me also say this. If you don't know Christ this morning, And this morning, first and foremost, would you cry out to him? Would you ask him to save you, to forgive you of your sins? Would you believe by grace through faith that he is the son of God and you need him? Would you cry out to him and ask his forgiveness this morning? Or would you come and pray? Maybe there in your seats you would pray and say, God, give me wisdom in these things. Whatever God is doing, would you respond?